For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about that movie with the Jedi's returning and stuff. Hi, I'm Rob Hired of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during season three, when instead I'm going to be talking through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. For many years, Return of the Jedi seemed to be everyone's third favorite film in the original trilogy. I didn't understand why, because I loved it. I was genuinely surprised when I got to college and found out people hated Ewoks, and I lived for the spectacle and closure of it all. Jabba and the Emperor have always been two of my favorite villains in the series, too. But I have to admit that on this recent careful rewatch, I started to see some of the complaints about structure. Anyway, let's get on to the metaphors. We begin, as usual, with an opening crawl, but for the first time in the series, we start differently. A New Hope's crawl begins, it is a period of civil war. Empire starts, it is a dark time for the rebellion. Short, pithy sentences beginning with, it is. Return of the Jedi's goes, Luke Skywalker has returned to his home planet of Tatooine in an attempt to rescue his friend Han Solo from the clutches of the vile gangster job of the hut. I want to say that this is a three-beat, except instead of establish, reinforce, subvert, Lucas appears to have gone with establish, reinforce, fuck off in a different direction altogether. It's probably the worst possible answer. If all three original crawls were different, there wouldn't be a problem. But having the first two establish a pattern and then ignore it entirely, not subvert, not even just continue, just looks like a mistake. Anyway, while the crawl talks about Luke right away, we won't actually catch up with him for quite a while. We'll instead start with Moff Jerjerod. Jerjerod? Jerry? The Imperial responsible for building the new Death Star. What's interesting to me about J.J. is that standing in the presence of Darth Vader, who he has managed to talk to without choking too much, he freaks out at the idea that the Emperor is coming to visit. Canonically, Palpatine keeps his status as a scary Sith wizard secret from almost everybody, so I'm intrigued that Dr. J. is still terrified of the Emperor anyway. What reputation must he have? And speaking of reputations, the movie spends a lot of time making sure that Jabba the Hutt will live up to his. He's been mentioned in both previous movies, but before the special editions had not been seen up to this point. 3PO gives us one last bit of foreboding chatter about the vile gangster before we actually get to meet him at long last. And I don't know about you, but he totally lives up to the hype for me. Jabba is great. And if you talk about his palace and other possessions as an extension of him, he's even better. First of all, if you want to build a den of opulence, making the guards look like pigs is a great start. It also helps if we meet the proprietor smoking a hookah of unidentified but presumably illicit substances. The smoking is important because I believe Jabba's palace is supposed to be an opium den. One of the distinctive features of the classic opium den was that the smokers were often reclining in order to hold the long pipes that could reach to the oil lamps that heated the drug for you. And obviously Jabba, by his nature, is always reclining. There were some concept sketches of Jabba that had him looking like a Chinese caricature, and thankfully they didn't go that way. But if you're curious, I've got a link in the show notes. Jabba also has a pet, Salacious B. Crumb, who seems to be a cross between a monkey and a parrot, because that way we've got both traditional pirate pets covered. Yes, I realize that Crumb is technically a Kowakian monkey lizard, but the beak has always said bird more than lizard to me, and his laughing interjections seem like parrot noises. And there's still more. I mentioned EV-99 in an earlier episode, the droid that gives R2 and 3PO their new assignments. But a connection I just made on this rewatch was that her third eye reminds me a bit of the third nipple that some witches are supposed to have. If EV is a witch, that would explain why she was, I believe, literally the only canonically female droid in the original trilogy. The answer, as usual, is patriarchy. For one more example of establishing Jabba as extremely scary, there's the fact that both Boba Fett and Dengar, another one of the bounty hunters we saw being hired by Darth Vader in Empire, are hanging out at his palace, presumably at his beck and call. So two bounty hunters who are apparently good enough at their job to get noticed by Darth Vader are on tap here. Jabba the Hutt is essentially the Sith Lord of Crime. Also, if I can go extra textual for a moment, I would just like to point out that in 1998, Dark Horse Comics published Jabba the Hutt, The Art of the Deal, making arguably the most unsavory connection for Jabba of all. Link in the show notes. 
So in the middle of the Jabba's palace sequence, there's a cutaway to an exterior shot, presumably to allow for time passing. It would be unremarkable, except for the odd inclusion of a large frog creature that is easy to miss until it moves, snapping up some hapless little animal and then burping. As a kid, I had no idea what to make of this moment. But now I think it's foreshadowing the next scene, which is when Leia gets unmasked and captured by an enemy that was also hiding right up until he caught her. But Leia does manage to achieve her immediate objective, getting Han out of the carbonite. And it's interesting that Han is blind here. Obviously, from an in-universe perspective, there should be some negative consequences for being frozen in a metal block for several months. And I have no trouble with Han being weak and shaky. But blind is a very specific choice. And I wonder if there's meaning there that I'm missing. It could just be that Lucas, knowing that there would be children in the audience, wanted to give Han a problem that's easy to understand as a major obstacle. In this kind of adventure fiction, we see heroes overcome injury and such to do heroic stuff all the time, so it's definitely understandable that he would want to make Han's problem something that he would be harder to shake off through sheer heroic willpower. On the other hand, Han is apparently the only one of our heroes, not counting C-3PO, who doesn't know the plan or believe that Luke is now a Jedi Knight, so maybe the blindness is intended to metaphorically reinforce how far out of his element Han is right now. And so at long last, after being the first two words of the opening crawl, Luke Skywalker finally shows up in person. And somewhere between movies, he has developed swagger. He walks in wearing his black robes and immediately force chokes two of the Gamorrean guards, because apparently the movie wants us to think that he turned to the dark side between movies. Let's just pause and marvel at what a storytelling choice that would have been. Skipping ahead a bit, I like the detail that Luke, who grew up on Tatooine, obviously understands Hatties. Skipping ahead a bit more, I'm flabbergasted by the extremely weird choice to take time after the Rancor's death to establish that it was someone's beloved pet. Between that and the musical number, I think the story of Jabba's palace is the story of poor impulse control on Lucas's part. And to be clear, I'm not saying, I don't like these things so they're bad. What I'm getting at is that both elements seem to work against the story being told, irrespective of their quality. The Rancor battle is a set piece for Luke to show off how inventive and skilled he is now, so retroactively undercutting the threat by showing the monster's keeper weeping over it feels counterproductive. Similarly, we've spent a lot of effort establishing that Jabba the Hutt is a dangerous degenerate, so also painting him as a devoted patron of the arts is at least a strange choice. The last thing I wanted to comment on for the Jabba sequence is the final fate of Boba Fett. I commented briefly in an earlier episode about Fett being a technological threat being eaten by an extremely organic hole in the ground but I'd like to expand on that. In this battle, we take some time to establish for real that Fett's armor really is kind of a Batman-style utility belt, with a cable shooter, a jetpack, a blaster, of course. Then, in rapid succession, Luke cuts his blaster apart, Han Solo accidentally activates his jetpack, and the Sarlacc eats him. So an active Force user disarms him, arguably a passive Force user in the form of Han Solo and his luck, sends him into the waiting teeth of a living death trap. This bit says to me, loudly and clearly, Life and the Force will always win over technology and violence, but teamwork will be important. From here, Luke announces mysteriously that he needs to go keep a promise to an old friend on Dagobah, to which I'd like to imagine R2 pointing out that since there is exactly one sentient being on Dagobah, Luke is not being as mysterious as he thinks he is. Speaking of Yoda, I think him trying to worm his way out of having a conversation about Luke's father might be the most vulnerable and relatable moment he's had in any medium. It's also interesting that Yoda was so insistent last movie that Luke needed to stay and complete his training, but now, no more training do you require. Presumably some part of Jedi knighthood has to be learned through experience, which is probably why they had trials. After Yoda dies, the ghost of Ben Kenobi shows up, and Luke calls him Obi-Wan for the only time in the series, as a measure of how angry he is. It's exactly like my mother saying Robert Kenneth Hyrett to me when I hadn't cleaned up my room properly. And let's be honest, Luke's anger is pretty understandable. Ben has made some spectacularly bad decisions during this whole mess, and he's about to make another. You'll note that he tells Luke to bury your feelings. Not let them go, but hide them, which doesn't seem very Jedi-ish, and will also fail as a strategy in the big confrontation with, Je with Vader at the end. Now, in Obi-Wan's defense, time is short, 
and he may have made the calculation that Luke is unlikely to properly process all his feelings before coming face to face with Vader again. Or, for an extremely compelling argument about why the whole Jedi Order is just a terrible role model concerning feelings, and how this relates to toxic masculinity, I direct you to a YouTube channel called Pop Culture Detective Agency, and their video The Case Against the Jedi Order, a link to which is in the show notes. From here we move into the pointer scene, in which the rebels gather to explain how the rest of the movie will work. We meet Mon Mothma, who has apparently been the leader of the rebellion all this time, question mark, Admiral Akbar, the gallant meme generator, and General Maydeen, proud owner of the worst hair in all of Star Wars, a series that, I need not remind you, began in the 70s, with all the follicular tragedy that that implies. The main reason I wanted to stop here, though, is to talk about Han and Lando. It's interesting to me that Lando will essentially be borrowing the Falcon, Han's narrative magnifier, for the climax, and this is the only time I can think of in Star Wars where this happens. It does make a fair bit of sense, though, since Han won't be using it, and Lando does have a link to the ship. It makes almost as much sense as the fact that Lando's call sign will be Gold One, arguably the best and most appropriate call sign in the entire franchise. But the thing that always sticks out to me about this scene is the bit where Han gloomily shares with Leia his feeling like he's never going to see the Falcon again. In most narratives, this would be a Chekhov's gun situation. You don't introduce an element without having it pay off at some point. But Lando and most of the Falcon, censor dish notwithstanding, do make it through. I've heard that there was a version of the script where Lando dies, probably taking the Falcon with him, so this might just be an artifact of that. It's odd, though. The key thing we learned about in the pointer scene is that the new Death Star, that marvelous fusion of mechanization and evil, is behind a shield projected from the forest moon of Endor. In other words, this industrial murder ball is being protected by nature, because Sheev Palpatine knows how to corrupt anything. I love that Endor is being suborned by the dark side in this way, not least because it gives us a reason for Endor, specifically to be the site of this new Death Star. It let Palpatine mess with the balance of the Force on what seems to have been an entirely unspoiled planet. I will now pause to acknowledge that the one teaser trailer we have for Episode Nine seems to suggest that we might learn something more about Palpatine and Endor, so this observation may become hilariously dated shortly. Frustratingly, one of the first things that happens on Endor is yet another example of Star Wars not taking its female characters seriously. To review, we learned like two scenes ago that Luke and Leia are twins, with presumably the same amount of mighty Skywalker blood. So it's disappointing that almost immediately we see them in an action scene together and Luke gets to shine so brightly at Leia's expense. Now before anyone points out that Luke is a mostly trained Jedi Knight at this point, while Leia has had zero Force training, that's no excuse for him literally backseat driving. He bosses her around about jamming their comlinks and otherwise is the only driving force of the scene. I don't even object to the fact that Luke takes out two of the biker scouts to Leia's one, cause Jedi, but she doesn't even really get to defeat her bad guy. Her contribution to making sure the rebels aren't spotted is to stay conscious long enough to see her scout trooper crash into a tree and die before she passes out. Meanwhile, Luke is off being aggressive and manly, wrestling with speeder bikes, blocking laser blasts, and cutting things apart. But, you say, doesn't Leia defeat two scout troopers on foot after the whole speeder bike chase? I'm so glad you asked, rhetorical listener. She does beat one guy unconscious with a big stick before shooting another guy, but only after she's been teamed up with Wicket the Ewok. And why is that important? Because Wicket is coded as a child, and Leia is coded as his mother here. One of the few standard ways women get to be badass in pop culture is when it's a mom protecting our kids, and we just watched Leia form a maternal relationship with his little teddy bear so strong that she'll pick him up off the log and he'll raise his arms exactly the way my daughter and I instinctively coordinate through long practice on maneuvers exactly like this. It's also worth noting that, back at the Ewok village, which is a big treehouse because children, Leia changes into an Earth Mother dress that the Ewoks either made extremely fast or inexplicably already had in her size. The main reason for this costume change is probably to maximize her femininity for the emotional scenes coming up with Luke and then Han, because she'll be back to soldier gear in the morning. The other character with an important relationship to the Ewoks is of course 3PO. I've always found the Ewoks' reverence for him fascinating 
because it was the first concrete evidence we ever got that there were religions besides the Jedi and Sith in the galaxy. And apparently the worship of gods is widespread enough that 3PO's original programmers, apparently Psy, Anakin Skywalker, thought of including a ban on impersonating a deity. My headcanon, by the way, is that Anakin was playing an extremely long game of 11-dimensional chess, assuming that his droid creation would one day be on the opposite side of a war from him, and he wanted to make sure it wasn't too easy for that droid to recruit followers. I'm going to make a side note here and talk for a moment about dramatic irony. So the Ewoks capturing Han and Luke et al. could be threatening, except that we, the audience, know that the Ewoks are friendly and opposed to the Empire, based on the scene where Leia meets Wicket. With the stakes appropriately lowered, we can have some silly fun with floating 3PO and whatnot. Similarly, we're going to introduce the idea that Han is jealous of Luke and Leia's relationship only after we, the audience, have already found out that they're siblings and presumably never going to be a romantic couple. This moment of Han's jealousy is kind of weak, though, and just looks to me like stirring up some false conflict so Han can be elated at the end that he gets to win the prize of the one young woman in the entire galaxy. And isn't it funny how he apparently thinks that she doesn't love him even after at the shield bunker? He told her he loves her and she clearly said, I know, right back? I mean, that's what you say in response to I love you, right, Han? All kidding aside, it's criminal to me that this callback isn't remembered more fondly. The original moment in The Empire Strikes Back does nothing for me, but this sly little smile of Carrie Fisher's here before she shoots stormtroopers off Han's back makes my day every time. The actual battle at the shield bunker is interesting for a few reasons. You're probably tired of me harping on the nature versus tech conflict in Star Wars, but this is one of the series' most direct examples of it. It would be difficult to create a more profound example of nature personified than tribal bear people who live in trees, and we see them using rocks, logs, sticks, and vines as their weapons and traps to varying degrees of effectiveness. I'm also fascinated that the turning point of the battle is when Chewbacca and two Ewoks capture an ATST. If Palpatine is subverting nature to protect his technology, Chewie and friends are subverting his technology right back. Notice that right after Chewie starts using the captured ATST, we see a couple of scout troopers be defeated essentially by their own speeder bikes, as one flies his neck straight into an Ewok rope, and another gets lassoed and spends an agonizing couple of seconds whirling around the tree, knowing that he's about to die in a fire explosion very, very soon. That one trooper is basically the only faceless henchman in all of Star Wars that I genuinely feel terrible for every time I see him die, by the way. But to return to my point, there's a great restoring balance to the Force idea here. That once Chewie shows the way to use the Empire's tech against them, the others start doing it as well. And that's how the good guys win, by restoring balance. And so we reach the final confrontation between Luke and the Sith, the climax of the entire trilogy, despite it boiling down to three magic weirdos in a room mostly just talking. I actually love the sequence of scenes, though, because of what it tells us about the Force and the ultimate conflict here. Early on, Luke says to the Emperor, Your overconfidence is your weakness, Chimpies. To which Palpatine replies, Your faith in your friends is yours, and don't call me Chimpies. These two lines show us that each of them understands the other's position pretty well. Luke plans to be a passive agent, waiting for the rebels to blow up the Death Star and take him and the two Sith with it. Palpatine, believing himself to be omniscient, thinks he's in control of everything that's going on. A belief in one destiny seems to be a trait of the dark side, by the way, which is fitting for a philosophy that believes in control above all. Palpatine says things like, It is inevitable. I have foreseen it. Where Yoda told us in the last movie that always in motion is the future. Given that Yoda also said, Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. There's maybe an argument to be made that Darksiders are trapped into their predestined paths once they embrace the dark, but that's outside the scope of this movie. While we're talking about Palpatine, I should mention that he seems like he's maybe a little rusty at the subtle corruption thing. When we saw him working on Anakin in the prequels, he presented insoluble problems and gently suggested that Anakin had been misled about who was good and who was evil. With Luke, he's all, let the hate flow through you, and interrupts the moment when Luke is about to cut down Vader to cheer him on. Maybe he shouldn't have skipped warm-ups before the big game, because I think it's the obvious villainy that makes Luke pause there. When the Emperor is being relatively subtle, it's significant that the focus of his trying to tempt Luke is the lightsaber. 
As the most potent personal weapon we know about, the dark side perspective is that lightsabers are agency. Without a lightsaber, you can't establish control of a situation, at least not when Darth Vader is standing there very much holding a lightsaber of his own. So Luke finally wins the 40-meter freestyle temptation event by throwing his own saber away. Of course, Palpatine then reveals that lightsaber as agency was a lie all along because he doesn't need a lightsaber to throw lightning and kill Luke anyway. As for Luke's part, trying to tempt Vader back to the light, I adore that Luke begins his charm offensive from some kind of elevated catwalk. He has the high ground. Obviously, this works as a reference to Revenge of the Sith, but it also just works as a direct metaphor. Luke is going to take the honorable route, the high ground in the argument, and try to convince Vader to do the right thing. Vader is way more effective at manipulating Luke, perhaps because he has experience with having your attachment to the one woman in your trilogy used against you. So his dropping Leia's name is the moment that finally sets off Luke for the final big fight. And it's a beautiful, if brief, fight. Luke's wild swings and the soaring John Williams score tell us everything we need to know about what's happening in Luke's mind. He's been overwhelmed by his emotions. He's become a creature of perfect rage, ready to cut his father into pieces. And then Palpatine the dumbass, who's forgotten how to corrupt, starts laughing and cheering, reminding Luke what he's supposed to be doing here. It's a great heroic moment and everything, but I firmly believe that if Palpatine had kept his damn mouth shut, Luke would have hacked Vader to bits and been lost to the dark side, probably forever. But Palpatine made, apparently, the only mistake of his entire career of elegantly hoodwinking the entire galaxy. And Vader saves Luke. We then get two back-to-back -back death scenes that beautifully illustrate the difference between the light and the dark. Palpatine, falling to certain death, continues to spew lightning everywhere until he apparently explodes like a bomb. The dark side says, I will lash out until I control everything, even if that control is at the expense of anything being left. Vader, on the other hand, or Anakin, I should probably say, gently corrects Luke, who doesn't want to take off the Vader mask, because without it, Anakin will die. Nothing can stop that now, he says, in perfect Jedi passivity, with perfect Jedi calm. So let's talk about the intertextual points in this movie. The one that leaped out at me on this viewing was Yoda talking about his imminent death. Soon shall I rest. Forever sleep. Earned it I have. This does not sound like the guy who proudly told Obi-Wan that Qui-Gon had taught him the secret of immortality at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Another bit that stuck out at me was Ben's ghost talking about Anakin. I took it on myself to train him is interesting, because we know that he was cajoled into training Anakin, who he didn't seem to even like very much, by his dying surrogate father figure. On the other hand, he did very much take on this role and told Yoda that he was prepared to train Anakin even without the Council's permission if necessary. So yeah, the fact that old Ben describes it this way feels like characterization to me, not mismatching backstory. But when Ben says that Anakin was already a great pilot, I think it's fair to say that a normal human would also mention that he was nine at the time. Yet another not-technically-inaccurate-but sort of moment. Finally, to throw forward a bit, when Luke is saying his farewell to Leia before his big confrontation, he tells her, if something happens to me, you're the only hope for the Alliance. I think this precise moment, or at least this train of thought, might be exactly what old Luke railed against in The Last Jedi. To say that if the Jedi die, the light dies is vanity. On to my favorite part, which is kind of a trivial part of the movie, but I can't be the only one that adores it, because it was used virtually unaltered as an ad for the original release of the special editions to rekindle everyone's nostalgia. It's 3PO, telling the Ewoks in their own language the story so far, including sound effects. I love this moment for a few reasons. First, it is the simple appeal of nostalgic recognition. Oh, I know what party's telling them about, is all you need to make the scene enjoyable. It's also implied character growth for 3PO, who told us in A New Hope that he wasn't very good at telling stories, but here has stepped outside his comfort zone to do his part. Finally, and this is the big one for me, it shows 3PO's worth to the team. He's not just the fussy comic relief, or R2's voice box. He has important abilities in his own right, and maybe it took three movies to do it, but he found the role he needed to play. So that wraps up my commentary on the original trilogy. If you want to discuss anything I've said here, talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit. Chipperish Media also has a Discord room for those patrons who support on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash chipperish and chip in a few bucks a month or whatever you can afford. You can also support any podcast you love by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and metaphors be with you. 
Finally, I would just like to mention to everyone out there who might write Star Wars dialogue, either in a professional or fan capacity, Pudu is not the Huttese word for poop. We hear Jabba very clearly say Bantha Pudu when the subtitles read Bantha Fodder. Fodder is food, not poop. Confusing them is always bad. Thank you. <laughs>